Hey guys, good morning, good morning. How we doing? Woo! I thought you would be a little bit more enthusiastic after that worship. I'm just telling you, man, great job to the worship team. Uh, fantastic spirit of the Lord in the house. I love that. Thank you to the media team for all you guys do this behind the scenes. And uh, for each of you that volunteer in any capacity, thank you. Because moments like that, moments where we can worship like that are just so truly special. And so, uh, and thank you to you for being here. So excited to have all of you today. Uh, I want to just start right up front talking about the American Missions team, the Kentucky team. Uh, I want to let you know that I am planning on going on that trip. And uh, I was going to invite you to go with me, but I just found out that's against the rules. (laughs) I'm new to the team so I don't know all the rules yet. I will be there, and I don't know if you'll be there or not. We just we're going to have to leave it right there. Uh, if you feel led to go, yeah. Here's what Kelly and I haven't talked about yet. Uh, I don't know what the jobs are. I don't know what jobs are available. I bring no appreciable skills to the team, but I can pray. So I want to be on the prayer team. I do want to go. And I did think it was a little bit more like a retreat. So we're really rethinking some things. I'm already on the prayer team. Yes. It's a team of one. So you guys are going to have to do construction or something, all right? But I'll be praying for you, so we're good. No, listen, uh, I am planning on going on to that. I hope that you will get some more information and, uh, and begin to pray about that and see if God's calling you to be a part of that. I know that for many of you, you'll have to ask off work or... There are some sacrifices that come along with that, uh, but I, I think if you talk to anyone who's been, uh, they would tell you it's well worth it, and so looking forward to, to doing that. All right, we are in a sermon series. We're finishing it up today. It's called Nope, Not Today, Satan, and so this is part four. This is the conclusion. We're wrapping it up, and I want to start by going backwards and reviewing some material because I know uh, some people have joined us since week one. I know for some of you, uh, maybe you've forgotten a little bit of the sermon from week one. You hadn't forgotten much, but maybe you've forgotten just a little bit. And so we're going to go back. Here's what we said, kind of to cover some old ground. We said that Satan is a decided fact. He is absolutely real. When we look in the scriptures, when we open God's word, we see that it says there is a devil. He is real. Now, when you look at polling, and I brought a study, and and between these two groups, there were two groups. One uh, group believed that Satan was not real, and one group believed that he was a symbol of evil. Well, he's probably real, but he's just a symbol of evil. He's not, like, active or working. Friends, both of those things are absolutely categorically wrong. Satan is a decided fact. What's more than that is he is a destructive force. He is bent on evil. He has bad intentions for your life, for the purpose that God's called you to. He has evil intentions in the church and in the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that we have to be scared of the devil. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say we have to be scared, but it does say we need to be sober-minded. It doesn't tell us that we have to be anxious, but Scripture does tell us that we need to be 
alert. We need to know what he's doing. We need to know his schemes, his methods, so that we can combat those things. Because here's the really good part. The, we said he's a decided fact, he's a destructive force, but then the last thing we looked at is that he is a defeated foe. Amen? Amen. Some of y'all ain't run into the devil or you'd be a little bit more excited about the fact that he is defeated. He's ultimately defeated in the lake of fire, but he is defeated even today, or he can be. We can look and say, get thee behind me, Satan. I ain't putting up with you. I'm not falling for your tactics your traps your schemes I'm not giving in to that stuff anymore and so here's what the word of god says scripture in ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 it says put on the whole armor of god why do you put on armor because you're going out to fight because there's a battle that the christian life is a battleground there is a real enemy that is against us and so put on the whole armor of god that you might be able to stand against the what's that word schemes against the schemes of the devil and i told you week one when we covered that 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 could mean tactics methods his strategies all those all the trickery that he's up to well he has three primary tactics here they are first john chapter 2 verse 16 it says this for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world that stuff's not of god it's schemes and tactics of satan and so I, i've got a chart i want to put up here Here's where we've been. We've talked about hedonism. We've talked about materialism. Now, these three schemes, they're the three schemes. That, that's, what, that's the way that uh, Satan came and tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. We looked at that. It's also the way, and he tempted Eve successfully. These are also the three tactics that he used on Jesus in the wilderness, but this time he was unsuccessful. He didn't get Jesus to sin We've covered all of these topics except for this last one, pride of life or narcissism, that narcissistic tendency. And so I want to give you a roadmap for what we're going to do today. We're going to zoom in on, on narcissism. We're going to talk about that scheme, that trick of Satan, and then we're going to zoom back out. And I want to talk about how to defeat Satan just in general. When he, when he begins to work and move in your life, how can we just defeat him no matter which scheme he throws at us? And so right off the bat, let's, let's talk about narcissism. Narcissism. Now, I recognize that's not a word we just go around saying. That's not a word you throw out every day. So let's look at the dictionary definition of that. Narcissism is having a self-centered exaggerated view of your self-importance excessive admiration of oneself excessive concern with one's own physical appearance i see some folks smiling and kind of giving each other oh, you you're beginning to think of some people right now aren't you you're like oh that's what's wrong with them they're a narcissist and there may be some truth in all that. I'll tell you a funny story. I was working with a guy one time. And we're working uh, kind of side by side. He's a little ways down. We're working. And I, I thought I heard him say something. 
And so I, he, and so I, I kind of go around like, wait, let me, let me, say, is he talking to me? Because I don't hear him. And my wife says I can't hear, so it might be me. Let me get a little closer to him. And so I got a little closer. I stopped what I was doing. And sure enough, he's saying something. He, he, he said something else. So I was like, uh, okay. Well, if he expects something out of me, he'll probably look this way or he'll probably, do you hear me? You know, but he didn't do any of that. And so a moment or two later, he says something else. This time I look at him and I said, hey, man, you talking to me? He looked at me and he said, ha, 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 no, talking to myself. Sometimes you got to talk to a pro. <laughs> I laughed and I stole that and I've said that many, many times. Because I frequently talk to myself. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Of course, he was joking around. He, he was doing it all in good fun. But we all have some narcissistic tendencies in us. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, we all deal with narcissism on some level. Let me give you a perfect illustration of that. You ever been in a group photo? What happens? They take the photo. They turn around. They say, what do you think about this? Is this one good? Where do your eyes immediately go? Oh, see me. And if it's a good photo of me, then it's a good photo. And if I don't look good, we need to retake it. It doesn't matter how good everybody else looks. A couple months ago, we were celebrating our third anniversary this past October, third anniversary as a church. And I meant to grab a, a big group picture that day and just in the hubbub of all the stuff going on and there was cupcakes so I was a little bit distracted and so and so we're, we're taken down and before we took down the photo booth I grabbed all the leaders that were there I said hey let's let's grab a group photo so we do this picture I see it. it's on my phone I see it, it looks good Facebook third anniversary baby here's me and some of the leaders about 30 minutes later, my phone is going off. Man, couldn't have picked a better picture, huh? Dude, couldn't use one where my eyes were open, huh? And so I go and look at the picture. About half the people in it looked like they were sneezing. It was, but I was looking good, so it went up. We all have some narcissistic tendencies, and, and there's nothing wrong, I, I don't want to make you misunderstand, there's nothing wrong with having a sense of self-worth, that's good, that's, that's God-honoring, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your body, there's nothing wrong, as a matter of fact, we should have some self-worth, we should have some pride in ourselves and in our appearance and how God made us. But the problem goes back to the definition that we learned about narcissism just a few moments ago. The problem is when it becomes excessive. Excessive. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a narcissist test today. I found this on Psychology Today, so this is not my test. Please don't get mad at me. But it's just a series of, of questions. Here's the first one. Narcissist test. Number one, is your listening one-sided is your listening one-sided narcissistic listening dismisses negates or otherwise renders irrelevant other people's concerns or comments so here's what you do if you're a narcissistic listener you listen you talk and then you listen long enough to see wait do they agree with me or are they wrong and if they're wrong maybe i need to explain it a little bit more 
because it never dawns on us maybe I could be wrong. And so it's narcissistic listening. Let's look at number two. Are your conversations mostly about your favorite subject, you? Are your conversations mostly about you? Your experiences, your adventures, your stuff. Are you the one-up guy in conversations? No matter what somebody else's story is, you can't let them have the moment because you always have a little bit better story. A little, oh, you, you saw a shark in the water at the beach? I was bit by a shark. Really? Where? Well, he didn't leave a scratch, but I was... It's this one-up mentality, this I'm always going to bring the conversation back around to me. Number three, do you believe rules apply to you? Do you, are, are you going to stand in line or are you going to cut in line? Are, are you going to believe that rules apply to you? Let me tell you what happened to me this week. So I went to this awesome conference. It was at Emanuel College in Georgia. And uh, some great speakers called the Cutting Edge Conference. It's for pastors. I go, and I'm just telling you, by Wednesday, my Jesus cup was full. And I'm excited. I'm coming back. Amazing grace. I'm just, I'm on a high. Wednesday, we're driving back. We're going down Interstate 85. They're doing some construction. And I see two miles you need to get over to the right. One mile you need to get over to the right. Finally, we're getting close enough. You know what? Let me just get on over to the right. It's the right thing to do. I'm being a good boy. My Jesus cup is full. And then we are just yards away. I don't even know. Super close. And this guy in the left lane cuts me off. My Jesus cup spilled a little bit. I want you to know I did not do anything that would harm the reputation of the church because our senior pastor was with me. So that was a good way for the Lord to hold me in check. Do you believe rules apply to you? I don't want my spouse to flirt, but I can flirt with members of opposite sex. I can cheat on my taxes. I can cut in line. I can ignore rules. I can do what I want because rules get in the way of me getting my way. Now, I'm going to stop right here. These are three questions. There's several other questions. And here's what I'd ask you to do. If you see a glimmer of yourself in any of these questions, I want to just encourage you, log on to Psychology Today, uh, look up Narcissist Test. It should be pretty easy to find. And get a trusted friend. Get somebody who knows you well and who's not scared to be very honest with you. And begin to ask them these questions. Because all of us have some level of narcissism. But, but here's what happens. Oftentimes, it is ha- it's hard to spot in the mirror. It, it's hard for me to see narcissism in me. And yet, it's one of the primary tactics. It's one of the primary schemes that Satan uses to, uses to separate us from God. Let's look at God's word, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will be, there will become times of difficulty, for people will be, read that next part, lovers of self. People will be lovers 
of self. And then it goes on this list. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. I want you to know, I, I didn't include the next two verses, but the next two verses, verses 3 and 4, continue on this litany. This, it's this list of these just horrible traits. Things that we would never want to be true of us. There are 19 characteristics listed in those few verses. And I read behind one theologian this week, and here's what he said. That, that all of those 19, all of those other 18 characteristics flow out of the first one. Being a lover of self, that is the sewer pipe through which the other 18 characteristics flow. What a word picture, right? None of us would want sewage to dump in our life. None of us would want trash dumped in our life. And yet, when we become a lover of self, when we are primarily concerned with my comfort, my happiness, my joy, I don't want to be inconvenienced, when all of those things become true of us, we are inviting, in fact, turning that sewer pipe for all of those other things to just dump in my life. And it happens little by little. You know, we talked about it with these bricks. It, it doesn't come, the, the sewer pipe just doesn't dump a ton in, in your life overnight. It happens slowly but surely. It starts with a drip. So we see those characteristics, uh, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, all those things. Now I want us to contrast that with what Scripture tells us is true about the heart of Jesus, the heart of our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, here's what it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Can I just stop right there and say, that is easy to read but hard to do. Can you imagine? I'm going to put somebody else ahead of me that, that, that my primary concern my primary focus is going to be others that's not natural you're right it's going to take the holy spirit's help to do that it goes on not looking to your own interest but each of you to the interest of others here's how you do it in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as christ jesus we all know that Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for us. That when we were unholy, when we were sinful, Jesus, even then, gave his life for us. He was concerned about others. There's a lot of things I could say about narcissism today. Let me just say one thing. One surefire way not to be a narcissist is to serve others. One surefire way not to be a narcissist is to serve others. You know, I think we, we make it so complicated sometimes, but it really can be that simple. I think about Jesus' life, of course, the example of the cross, but also the example of Jesus in the upper room. You know, we talked about it last week with communion. Uh, we talked about what he did and the, uh, the bread and the cup. But also as a part of that time together with his disciples, 
It tells us in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus, after the meal was over, he took off his outer garment, he tied a towel around his waist, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now here he is. He's the most powerful person in the room. He didn't have to do that. Jesus knew he was getting ready to die on the cross. It, was, it would have been incredibly understandable if he would have said, you know what, tonight, boys, I need you to serve me. But he didn't do any of those things. His mindset was, I'm going to value others above self. I want to take a moment and set an example. Because to wash another person's feet, that would have been the job of a slave. Respectable people didn't do it. It was only slaves who washed feet. And yet Jesus, the greatest of all, humbles himself to the lowliest position and serves others. Again, I'll just say it. One surefire way not to be a narcissist is to serve others. As we talk about narcissism, you know, I, I mentioned just a moment ago. Um, so early on in the series, we brought up these blocks. And we talked about how these schemes, these, these tactics of the enemy, he doesn't just come with a whole wall. We don't see it coming. It happens little bit by little bit. And, and we just accept one little thing, and then here comes another one. And with narcissism, you know, I, I think it might go something like this. You know what? You're, I'm busy. I don't have time to have a quiet time with Jesus every day. He understands that. I'll get to it when I can. There comes a block. There comes a barrier in our relationship with him. You know what? I, I'm just going to, I'm fine. Everything's good. I'm not sick. I could go to church. I'm just going to watch online this morning. I'm just going to, I want to stay in my PJs. I want to sip some coffee. I just... And, and little bit by little bit, these blocks are added. And what happens is one day we look around and we realize, whoa, I'm walled in. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And I find myself on one side and God's on the other. I find myself on one side and God's children are on the other side. And we feel that separation. In fact, maybe some of you, you came in here today and your life just feels heavy you're carrying around the weight of all of these schemes of satan in your life you're carrying around all of this all of these things and here's what we want to talk about for the remainder of our time together i want to talk about how can we break free i, I don't want to just stop adding additional bricks to my life i want to know how can i look and say nope not today, Satan. You're not winning. You're not separating me anymore. You're not going to gain an advantage in my life. The way we do that is found in Scripture. I think one of the best, uh, some of the best verses I've seen on this are in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, it says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Jesus. I thought that was a trick question, didn't you? Uh, I, don't, I think it's Jesus. I'm not saying it loud. The, the Messiah is Jesus. 
This next part, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Who's that? It's Satan. It's Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been, look, he's been hurled down. Read the first part of verse 11 with me. They triumphed over him. What we see next is a roadmap to victory against Satan. When Satan starts his stuff, and he will, he is a destructive force. He has evil intentions for you. He wants to separate you from God. But when he starts, here's what we can do. Here's how we overcome. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Do you see right there the three weapons? When, when we're in the war with Satan, we've put on our battle, we're standing against him. Here are the weapons that we have, the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and living without fear of death. Or I could say, really living, living fully alive. Let's look at weapon number one. The blood of the lamb. Blood of the lamb. <clears throat> hey, church people, uh, there are times when we have a language that outsiders don't understand. So, so if you're here today and you're new to this whole church, Jesus, Bible thing, we say blood of the Lamb, and, and all the people who've been in church their whole lives, all the Christians, you guys know what that means? And you're like, yeah, baby, blood of the Lamb, let's have revival. Bring the worship team back up here, we're going to sing. Blood of the Lamb. And for all the new people, they're like, blood? Blood? There's going to be blood? We don't deal with blood. Power. <laughs> talking about the blood of the Lamb, we're talking about power, baby. There you go. We live in a society where we don't, we're not around blood all that often anymore, are we? In your normal day-to-day -day life, you know, Back in the day, people were hunter-gatherers. You didn't go out in the woods and kill today. You're not going to eat tonight. We don't really live in that. So unless you're in the healthcare field or maybe a farmer, or I don't know what other professions, uh, but, but there are some professions that deal with blood. But for many of us, the thought of blood might make you a little bit squeamish. It's like, ooh. I'll just tell you, so part of my job, part of the, 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 the honor, one of the greatest things I get to do uh, is whenever you guys are going through things, I get to go to the hospital room. I get to go pray with you guys before surgery, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I'll just tell you now, so we have an understanding. If there's a little bit of blood, I'm good. As a matter of fact, this really just applies in general to if there is stuff that's supposed to be on the inside of you, and a lot of those things make their way outside of you somehow, I'm going to have to pray from the door. <laughs> Jesus can hear me in the hallway. <laughs> because there was one time, been doing this eight years, there was one time. I won't tell you about it, I'll just, I'll say this. I had to lean against the wall. Lord, help me. Don't let there be two victims in here. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Blood's an important substance. It's important. You know, that's the reason why uh, 
the Red Cross. When you donate blood, they give you a shirt. They get some information because they want to send you postcards. They want to send you reminders. They need you to continue to donate because you are donating the gift of life. When we give blood, as much as science has advanced, as much as technology has advanced, one of the things that they just absolutely cannot replicate is blood. Blood's so important. And we know that physically, but it's true spiritually as well. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. We talk about silver or gold, we're thinking, man, we've got something now. You kidding me? Money? Gold? Yeah. We all know there are so many people in our world that live for the almighty dollar. Just how can I get more? We really talked about that in the materialism sermon. How can I get more? When will it be enough? I don't know, but I need a little what? I need a little more. I need a little more. If my salary would go up $10,000 next year, I'd be excited. If it'd go up $20,000, I'd be more excited. I just want more. And yet, what Peter's telling us here, silver or gold, no, nah, don't, don't worry about any of that. You weren't, you weren't purchased. That was not your purchase price. It wasn't with something perishable like silver or gold. Verse 19, you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We were bought with something far more valuable, the blood of the lamb. See, part of God's redemptive plan all throughout history involved this substance that you cannot replicate. This substance that we all need to live, it involved blood. In the Old Testament, if you would sin, you had to go and make a sin offering. That meant you had to go to the temple, take your animal to the priest, whether it be a sheep or an oxen or a dove or whatever it was that your specific thing called for, and that priest would have to kill that animal because for there to be remission of sin, of sin, there had to be shedding of blood. But it all changed when Jesus came along. It all changed because Jesus began a new covenant. He lived a perfect life. And in living that life, He died on the cross for us. And now, by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, we have been redeemed. And there is no further need for sacrifice because Jesus' blood paid it all. Amen? All of that harkens back to Exodus. And what happened with the Exodus with the children of Israel? Let me just quickly tell you the story. So the children of Israel, they're in Egyptian captivity. God sends Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. You've heard that in Sunday school, VBS. Moses comes, let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, no, they're the slaves. Nothing would get done without them. So he's not going to let them go. First one plague, then another. Finally, nothing is changing Pharaoh's mind. Not finally. He would change it first, and then he'd cycle back. And <clears throat> finally, there was the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn. And God gave Moses some instructions. And here's Moses giving these instructions to the people. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 30, uh, 21. Then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. 
take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. You, you catching what's happening here? They go, they get the lamb, they, they slay the lamb, the blood goes in the bowl, they take the hyssop, it acted like a paintbrush, and they painted the two doorposts on either side, and then the lintel was the piece across the top. You say, Pastor Andy, why didn't they do it at the bottom? Because you never trample the blood of the lamb. It was not to be stepped on, it is never to be treated lightly. And so they paint the two doorposts. Well, then it, it continues on. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Sure enough, next morning, what happens? All the Israelites, they've put the blood of the lamb on their door. They wake up. Everybody in their house is fine. For all the Egyptians, they did not apply the blood. And so they wake up, and the firstborn of their family, the firstborn of their livestock, all of the firstborn are dead. Here's the point in all that. It didn't matter that the Israelites had the lamb. It didn't matter that they slayed the lamb. It didn't matter if they collected the blood, if they did not apply it. The blood has to be applied. The blood had to be applied to the doorposts for them. And in our lives, the blood has to be applied as well. What does that mean for us? How do we apply the blood of the Lamb to our life? See, it's not enough that Christ died on the cross. That just means the blood has been shed. That means that the gift is available. But now it is up to us to receive that free gift. It's up to us to accept that free gift for us. And we begin to apply it. We do so. You've seen us the many times at the end of our services. Uh, we pray a prayer. Something like this. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come live in my I want to be saved. That's the first step. But then it is daily keeping that relationship with Him. It's daily praying, talking to our Heavenly Father. It's daily Hearing from Him through reading His Word, being in worship, not neglecting uh, being with other believers. The blood of the Lamb has to be applied. It has to be applied. Then we go to weapon number two, and I'm going to pick up some pace here. Weapon number two is our testimony. Our testimony. Go back to verse 11 of Revelation chapter 12. It says, they triumphed over Him. How? By the Word of of their testimony. Sorry, I know a lot of you are writing. They triumphed over him by the word of their testimony. So we see here, Jesus has a part. That's the blood of the Lamb. But we have a part. That's the word of our testimony. Will we testify to what it is we've seen and heard? Hey church, can I tell you, whether you realize it or not, with the words that you speak, with the actions that you do, you are testifying to something. It could be to the blood of the Lamb or it could be to something else, but we are testifying. You know, last week, Carson Daly stood up here and he did too good of a job, which I'm a little upset about. But one of the things he said, one of the things he said is, and I, I, you've probably heard this before, 
If you were to be hauled into court on charges of being a Christian, would you be found guilty? Is there enough evidence? Is there enough evidence? You know, when we talk about testimony, of course, the, where our mind goes is the courtroom scene, right? So in the courtroom, the judge and the jury, they're trying to decide one thing. Is this person guilty or innocent? And the way that they do that is they bring in witnesses and they hear their testimony. They bring in people who were there. They bring in people who are close to this person. What do, do you think he did it? Do you, what do you know? Tell me what you know. Tell me what's fact. And they want to hear that testimony. They want to know what those closest to that person said. Look at what Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who's the author of Hebrews talking about here? He's talking about the people of the Old Testament. See, the New Testament is being written, obviously. The Hebrew writer is writing it. But the Old Testament had been written. They had it. It was their Torah. And they knew their Torah. They would read it. They would study it. And so the writer here is saying, you know. You know the truth. There are such a great cloud of witnesses. How can, you not, how can you say that you've not heard the testimony? He's talking about the men and women of the Old Testament. He's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. All of them were pointing to something. Let me keep going. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is. Here's what all of this great cloud of witnesses were pointing to. Verse 2, looking to who? Jesus. They were all. You say, Pastor Andrew, Jesus hadn't even been born when the Old Testament folks were alive. But they were looking forward to a coming Messiah. They didn't know when he would be born or how or what his name would be. They didn't know quite a bit. Now, of course, in the prophetic literature, you have all these prophecies about the Messiah, but they were all looking to Jesus. All of their testimony pointed to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me go ahead and introduce weapon number three, because it is so closely tied to our testimony. And that is living without fear of death. Or again, I told you, you could write living fully alive. Now here's the deal. Live without fear of death, that sounds wrong on the surface because we all have a fear of death, at least a little bit. There is a survival instinct in us, right? That's the reason why God gave us some of our basic fears. For some of you, you're scared of heights. Get me up on a ladder? No way. <laughs> nope, not today, Satan. Why? Because you're fearful of fire. I could get hurt. I could die. I could. For others of you, you're fearful of going low. You would never in a million years go scuba diving. Why? Because something bad could happen. I'm staying on the surface. For some of you, you're scared of, of tight spaces. You're claustrophobic. No way, no how. Not getting in a tight space. All these fears are normal and natural. For some of you, you're fearful of clowns. 
Because you're wise. Just because God's given you wisdom. This thing could drag me down to the sewer. Look, I'm joking around a little bit, but, but in all seriousness, go back to verse 11. They triumphed over him because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. I believe in my testimony so wholeheartedly. I know what God's done for me. And so there's something in me. There's a fire in my bones. I've got to tell somebody. The disciples were the same way. The disciples, I think this is one of the greatest evidences for the, the truth of Jesus and who he claimed to be. Because every single disciple, well, let me say it like this, all the disciples that Jesus had except for one died a martyr's death. And for the one that didn't die the martyr's death, he was boiled in oil. So he sacrificed big time as well. You don't give your life for a lie. You don't give your life for something that's pretend. If my life is on the line, it's got to be for something I believe in wholeheartedly. And for these disciples, they absolutely were persuaded of the truth that Jesus was alive, that he was the Messiah, he's who he claimed to be. He died a death on the cross, and I saw him die, I saw him beaten, I saw him tortured, and I don't know what happened, but I'm just here to tell you, on the third day, I saw him rise, and he was alive, and he appeared to us, and to many other witnesses, and he walked on the earth for 40 days, and I don't know how, but I'm telling you, it is absolutely true and it is my testimony and i'm telling you about the blood of the lamb and i'm telling you my testimony and if it costs me my life so be it because i'm not going to shrink back from it now can i just put a question to us what about us what about us here today 2020 Are we fearful of death? You know, I, I believe wholeheartedly that the bridge, and, and, and there are many believers uh, in the Mount Olive area, that the norm is not true. I believe you guys are on fire for Jesus. But as a whole, I think there are a lot of believers who won't even live for Jesus, let alone die for him. And I think it goes back to narcissism. You know, I'm not, well, that would inconvenience me. Well, that would be, I don't know, I, that wouldn't be comfortable. And, and we've been given this great gift. The blood of the Lamb has been shed and can be applied to my life. And so the question of this series, of this whole sermon series, is, Knowing all that we know, are we going to look the devil in the face, knowing that he's real and knowing that he's destructive, and are we going to tell him that he is defeated in our life and in our family and in our church? Are we not going to stand? These three bricks, you know, they, they tie in so closely. Possessions, positions, uh, all three. Uh, hedonism, narcissism, materialism. All, the three uh, the, the three schemes of Satan. But are we going to look at him and say, but I've got a weapon. I've got the blood of the lamb. 
I've got my testimony. And I'm not going to shrink back from death. I'm going to defeat Him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand in victory. Everyone, if you would, just stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much that we don't have to fall victim to the schemes of the enemy, that You've not put us here powerless, that You have put weapons in our hand. And so we don't have to be victims. As a matter of fact, Your Word tells us that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And so God, today we stand in a place of victory and we look back at Satan and say, Nope, not today, Satan. What once worked on me is not going to work anymore. What once worked in my family is not going to work anymore. You have no place here. And so, Father, I pray for each and every person under the sound of my voice. I pray for each and every person who calls the bridge home and and the believers in this community. God, that we would, would stand in power and that we would break free from those schemes of the enemy. God, your word tells us that we have been endued with power from on high. It is my prayer that we would walk in that power and would not shrink back from it anymore. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our hearts now and for what you're doing in this place. We give you all the glory and the honor. Pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.